Hello, and welcome to episode 109 of Tea or Books. My name's Simon. I'm Rachel. In this episode, we will be doing boarding house novels versus living alone in novels. And in the second half, we're doing two heatwave novels now that it's really quite cold in England. (laughs) Um, Heat Lightning by Helen Hull and Heat Wave by Penelope Lively. Uh, Hopefully that will warm us up when we discuss it later. Uh, But first of all, Rachel, how are you? You've been dashing all over the country. (laughs) What are you reading? Um, I'm currently on the sofa with a blanket and a cup of tea. That's how cold it is. Um, And my my, um, coronation mug from 1950. We're all still a bit sad, aren't we? Yeah. And yes, I've been all over. I've been living in Devon for most of the month um, at my sister's house. Not with my sister. It's her holiday home, which makes us sound horrific people, but... To be fair, it's where my husband is from and it's where his parents live. So it's their little bolt hole for when they stay. Because trust me, no one wants my three nephews staying with them. So um, (laughs) so that's been lovely. And um, being by the sea is just glorious. The sea is literally right outside the front door. So I have just had a wonderful time and the weather was glorious. But I I took a huge pile of books with me because I thought I'm going to get so much reading done. Um, Read practically nothing. Um, because I was just, you know, I don't know what I did with my time. I was just really just, I don't know, relaxing and sitting by the sea and just pondering things. So I didn't really feel in the mood. I did read um, The Flowering Thorn. Actually, do you know what? One of the problems was I took The Flowering Thorn with me, which is Marjorie Sharp novel, yeah, one of the early ones. Um, I'm not sure if it's been republished, actually. It may probably has by um, Farid Middlebrow. They haven't done it, but Open Road Media might have done. I'm not sure. You're right. Yes, well, I managed to get a a second-hand copy on eBay, and I was so enchanted by it that after I finished, I just... I didn't want to read something else. I was really Uh, sad to kind of leave the world behind, really. Um, And I have Claire, a captive reader, to thank. She's listening. Hi, Claire. Claire. lovely, Lovely Claire in Canada. Um, who I was dithering over whether to buy it because it wasn't super cheap. And I saw her review and she spoke so warmly of it that I thought, oh, if Claire thinks it's good, then I'll I'll get it. And she was right. So it's a very um, interesting, odd story, actually. I'm not sure if you'd like it. Um, it's <laughs> a woman who said it's written in the 20s, so it's one of her really early ones. And it's about a woman who's a party girl. She's a single lady in London, living it up in her mansion flat, um, going to parties every night and um, after a man she likes doesn't like her back she decides she needs to make a change in her life and she randomly decides to adopt a four-year-old boy oh wow um, out of no maternal instinct whatsoever just because she thinks it'll make a change and um, in order to facilitate the life of, of this boy she decides she has to move to the country um, because she can't afford a flat in London that will that will be big enough for them and obviously the live-in staff on her measly income from her <laughs> investment fund or whatever she lives off of. So she ends up in this cottage in the countryside. And at first I was like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe I'm reading this. But then after once I was about 50 pages in and I just accepted the premise, I absolutely loved it. And I thought, this is brilliant. This is just what I needed to read at this point at this point in time so i highly recommend it if you come across a copy it is one of her, her better ones well i do have a copy in oh, fact it's what i bought it this year i think after claire was a guest on and talked about 
um, Four Gardens with us, and she was saying yeah. that was her favourite Marjorie Sharp, yeah. or one of her favourites. Uh, so yeah, as you say, it wasn't super cheap, but uh, I found a very beautiful edition and thought, since I'm only buying my 24 books this year, I can afford to get a nice, nice copy of this one, but I've not read it yet. No. Well, I've also like never come, I've never read a mural shop, uh, Marjorie shop that I didn't like. So I, yeah, I'm relatively it, confident that it'll be good. Think you can go wrong with a Marjorie shop, to be honest. No, some, some of them a bit more serious, some a bit more fun, but they're all good. They yeah. are good. Yeah, so that's what I the the last thing that I've read. I've got several things on my on my reading pile. Um, I just I went to Cardiff yesterday, my first time in Wales. Shocker! Your first, my gosh! Oh, I've just never been to Wales. I don't know what it is. My parents keep insisting that we went all the time as children, but <laughs> we went to a place called Ross on Wye, which I'm pretty sure is actually in England. Like just in Herefordshire. Yeah, and I keep telling mm. my parents this, and they won't have it. And I've shown them on a map. I'm like, guys, look, it's across the border. My mum's like, no, it's definitely in Wales. I was like, okay, sure. I think she means <laughs> like we must have taken day trips into Wales or something, but I have no memory of it, which was so <laughs> wonderful. I went to see my friend's play that she's got on, and it was it was a really lovely. Um, trip and made me think I'd like to read some Welsh literature so if anyone's got any recommendations for me other than how green was my valley then I would would love to hear particularly of some contemporary Welsh writers actually yeah lovely let's get sent to the landscape but I've got nothing else to report really other than I'm very excited that lots of new books are coming out and obviously we must also say I was actually more sad about this than the Queen that Hilary Mantle has died and it's horrific yeah I mean that was she, a shock wasn't it it was a shock and she just started a new book apparently which is just I'm full of grief for the book that we will never have but um I'm also planning on on doing some of her backlist because I've only ever read the Wolf Hall trilogy so yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it has, hasn't it it's been a time and in fact uh, the uh Founder of the, the company I work at died this week as well, which has been a big oh, thing. So, yeah, also in, in his nineties as well. Oh, right, but, um, good yes. life, good long life. Yeah, but yes, weird, weird year. Weird year. So anyway, what have you been reading? Uh, so, as you know, Karen from Cagsy's Bookish Ramblings and I do uh, these club years every, every six months, and yeah. the 19, 1929 club is coming up in October. Yeah. So I'm doing a little pre- preparatory reading for that. Um, and one of the books I have for that is Speedy Death by Gladys Mitchell. Well, that sounds wonderful. Yes. Have you read any Gladys Mitchell? Do you know what? I haven't, but I feel like I see her books all the time. Is there something more famous of hers? I don't know if any individual one is very famous, but she was very prolific. Uh, yeah. So she might turn off a lot. And they all have this, uh, the same... I don't know if they all do, but most of them have the same old lady detective who's described as being sort of hideously ugly, but was played by Diana Rigg in the in the TV <laughs> version. So it's just absurd. It's a noted beauty Diana Rigg. Um, which I and I watched the TV series in the maybe late nineties, early two thousands. Um, which I'm now forgetting the name of the Mrs. Some Mrs. Bradley Mysteries, that's it. Oh, yeah. Uh and I definitely have seen a book based uh, sorry, I've seen the episode that was based on this book because i remember the murder i just don't remember who did it but at some point i'll probably think how clever of me to work this out when in <laughs> fact i'm just subconsciously remembering what happened at the moment i got no clue uh but that's good fun it's a bit it's a bit sort of uh spikier than your than other uh golden age detective novelists i've read a bit bit a bit less pleasant maybe in some ways but in a way that i'm quite enjoying interesting i have to look out for that i probably like that yeah, I, th- I think 
as far as I know, they're they're all fun to read. So yeah, next time you see one of her books, why not grab it? It's my first one by her. I do have a handful on my shelves. Um, Obviously, you do. Sorry. Of course, I do. Of course, I do. Uh, what else am I reading? Uh, I'm reading some essays by Christopher Morley, uh, which is also 1929, of um, uh, Parnassus on Wheels and Haunted Bookshop yeah. fame. Uh, uh, these are sort of, I guess, whimsical essays of the type that were published in the 1920s, <laughs> uh, including one all about Oxford, so I enjoyed that. Yeah, but uh, I have not been gallivanting all over the country. I have just been here, but I'm going off to Cornwall myself in oh, still, still nearly two months well soon soon i'll be on holiday yeah it'll be fun yeah uh so in the first half we're doing sort subject that was sort of prompted by jillian who got in touch it's not so jillian asked us to talk about boarding houses and i thought we could just do do we like boarding house novels or not but obviously we do so i thought it'd be more fun to do boarding house novels versus living alone so novels where people are very much isolated if we can think of those um, I think these are both topics that we've sort of touched on in other episodes. Uh, maybe in the question and answer, we gave some boarding house novels we liked, and I'm sure we've, we've done big fam- big casts of characters versus small casts. But I think there's something still still, still some nuance there that we can find. Um, Rachel, yeah. do you want to kick us off with some? Let's talk uh, boarding house novels first. Yeah, you know the boarding house novel is something that I think is is such a wonderful glimpse of a particular time in certainly British history of um you know when you've got these the kind of concept of all these people living together in places where they were served food and that they had the opportunity to kind of have a community I mean obviously it's not unusual now for people to to sort of have share as it were Mm. um but the boarding house novel is is something that just really feels so um I guess it kind of crystallises a point in time where you're kind of in that sort of mid, between the wars and slightly after the wars period where things haven't quite shifted yet away from that kind of um, servant, servanted environment um, where people yeah. are sort of, um, and it, where it's a kind of also an unusual or something to be slightly pitied to be in that scenario where you need to be in a boarding house. Um and I think for me, my favourite example of—I mean, I with can we be loose with boarding house? Well, I was going to try and be quite precise at oh, least at okay. first because I think there are lots that sort of on the peripheries, like you know, an old people's home or paying yeah. guests or these things which aren't quite the same. So, but but feel free to mention them if you if you want to dive to the peripheries first. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think my first boarding house novel that I read and. Um, really enjoyed was the girls of slender means i think that's mm-hmm. the house that she says at the may of tech boarding house yes yes and that's a muriel spark novel and just the the kind of the way that she describes the smells and it's a very i mean muriel spark is is that sort of novelist where she always manages to find the um unpleasantness and everything but <laughs> um but the kind of the smell of cabbage lingering in the hallway and the fact that everybody's trying you know there's there's particular characters and they do crop up in boarding house novels repeatedly i think you know you've always got the nosy older woman you've got the the kind of lovely kindly elder lady who's fallen on hard times um you've got the kind of young women who are waiting to get married essentially and 
it's so interesting to see these kind of people mixing together in in what turns out to be quite a I suppose it's quite a dark novel really and hopeless in a way mm. it's interesting to see the idea of the boarding house as I mean I'm rambling but um the idea of it as, as being it's a home but it's not a home and it's it's a bit of a purgatory really these people are are living there but they're they're kind of everyone feels very temporary and it's it's not an ideal scenario for anyone. Everyone's hoping at some point that they'll be able to leave. So you've got these people that are in this kind of fluctuating time in their lives and you've got a lot of potential in there for conflict and tension, which often does spill out into the to the lives of the other people. But I think it's also often quite intensely a female um, environment and particularly in that time, you know, in the mid-century, the idea of what type of woman ends up in a boarding house. Um, and you know how are we supposed to view that are we Mm. supposed to have pity um or actually is is it really an opportunity and I always feel sad that Barbara Pym never wrote a boarding house novel because I think she would have done a wonderful job of it yes true (laughs) (laughs) well one of the other 1929 books I'm reading uh is Paying Guests by E.F. Benson where they're not really actually paying guests in the sense that was often used with people maybe just going one person going with a family or something and and to keep the dignity up rather than saying that they were yes. poor relations or something they'd say and paying guests it was a sort of a level uh where everyone kept their dignity and it, you didn't have to have that inequality between the host and the and the guest and that sort yeah. of thing whereas this one is it's called paying guests but it's much it's very it's, it seems very clearly a boarding house it's run by two sisters uh and being ef benson it's spiky and witty and just a delight and it is actually quite a mix of men and women most of them uh older in years but a couple younger ones um and a lot of it is about someone who he doesn't use the word christian science but someone who's clearly a christian scientist and is trying to persuade everyone that they don't actually have lumbago and that sort of thing um (laughs) uh and yeah that's really fun and it's an opportunity as you say for bringing together disparate people who wouldn't necessarily have chosen to be in that circumstance um which also reminds me of uh the slaves of solitude by patrick hamilton a brilliant boarding house novel have you read that one i do have no you tell us more oh it's so wonderful it's uh set and indeed written i think just after the second world war uh and the enid is the heroine uh, who hates living in this boarding house and is routinely bullied by Mr. Thwaites, who is drawn as this brilliant ogre. He's because he's not actually monstrous. He's just very selfish and certain of how right he is and desperate to tell everyone everything. He just mansplains to everyone all the time, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's sort of like a Victorian caricature. Uh, so, yeah, like a Dickensian, I guess, caricature in some ways. It's a little over the top, but uh, in a really effective way. He's Patrick Hamilton is absolutely brilliant with dialogue and there's sort of sort of hope for her because there's this soldier who she might fall in love with and might she might get an American soldier she might get out of the situation and then it sort of becomes unclear whether or not she'll be able to escape it but yeah he suddenly brings out the monstrous side of the boarding house but whilst also being a really funny quite dark novel um, in fact it was listed Jackie Wine who does a book blog recently did a list of boarding house novels helpfully I went to double check before he started recording uh yeah and that's on her list which also has uh, um and uh, yeah some great suggestions and the comments have lots of others if people want to go and hunt that out but, hey, what, um, what does she say are the best on her list so the state of solitude is on her list um 
what else does she have? She had Of Love and Hunger by Julia McLaren Ross, which I have read, but I don't remember the boarding house element. It's about a guy who sells vacuum cleaners door to door. Uh, and I remember those bits very well, but I assume he must also live in a boarding house. Don't remember that. Um, House of Dolls by Barbara Cummins, she had. Again, I've read that, and that's, I think it's a house for ex prostitutes, but I could be misremembering that horribly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And School for Love, or School of Love, one of those two by Olivia Manning, which again, I've read that's set in Jerusalem. Um, Yeah, so in fact, I think the only one on the list I hadn't read is The Boarding House by William Trevor. Do you know that? No, I mean, I've not read any of these books. I'm very bad at reading boarding house novels. Clearly, yes. <laughs> I've not read any William Trevor, but it's a name that comes up a lot to someone um, who I'm sure I would like. Uh, so I don't have that one, but I did buy something else by him last year to, to finally try. I think he's, he's he's one of those people who's equally respected at the short story and the novel, which is quite rare, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's, you've got to have quite a talent to do both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll mix and match so let's talk about living alone can you think of books that really get the isolation in there I mean obviously there's the L-shaped room where um, by Lynn Reed Banks where she moves to be by herself in the shared house but obviously she doesn't end up being by herself and you know I don't particularly like that book yes Um, and I love it I think that's interesting um, to explore the idea of of what that was like in the 70s and feeling ostracised from society and going to live by yourself and that being quite a radical act, even though she's not by herself, she is by herself essentially because she's in her own little section of the house. Um, but she very quickly obviously forms forms a very convenient bond with um, someone else. <laughs> everyone. Quite quick, everyone quite quickly. He will help her out in her situation. Um, I'm just looking at my shelves. Um, I really love The Magnificent Spinster by um, May Sarton. Mm. is a sort of semi-biographical, well, it's not biographical, but, well, yeah, semi-biographical, not semi-autobiographical um, book about uh, a woman who chooses not to get married and chooses to live by herself and to uh, use her money. It's the daughter, I think she was the daughter of Thackeray, I want to say, no, not Thackeray, um, gosh, American. Um, <laughs> oh, Thoreau? No, I think it's going to come to me. It'll come okay. to me some point um the poet Hiawatha oh long long thingy long (laughs) long fellow long fellow his daughter and um she obviously has a lot of money as a result and she lives on this uh, beautiful house on an island somewhere in New England I mean it's just makes you want to go there instantly and she uses her um her home as a space for other people to enjoy and um it's not about loneliness in essence but because I don't think she is lonely but what she struggles with is other people's perceptions of her as being lonely Mm, Um, other people's pity because you know she chooses not to get married she doesn't have children um and you know this this questioning of of is is that of a valid life and would would a man in the same situation be pitied and, and criticised almost for, for making the, the same choice? Um, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, you've also got Lolly Willows, which is one of both of us love that book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and her choice to, in the beginning, she's in a paying guest sort of scenario, really, where she's she's forced to live with her her family because you know she's a single woman and uh, the others feel that i think it's her brother isn't it feels that's right yeah 
has to look after her and she's got to live in his house with her sister-in-law which is obviously a nightmare situation um and when she does decide to go and live by herself it's you know shock and consternation that she could possibly think of such a thing you know what would she do how would she manage and obviously she manages by um, I won't say well we should, everyone knows she becomes a bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, going off and, and that kind of freedom and joy she has in finding her own space and that's what I love about that book so much is that rather than being seen as an object of pity it, from a narrative perspective, which is quite a rare thing for a novel of the period, um, she is shown to be somebody who is able to live her best life, for want of a phrase, <laughs> um, by being by herself. And, and that, that being by herself gives her the freedom to, to be the person that she really wants to be rather than being confined by the expectations of others. Um, so that's I think that's probably the best book I've read actually about living alone um, I don't think I've read anything that's really been about extreme loneliness I mean I know of books that exist but I haven't read them myself so I couldn't comment well I've got two examples that are really about absolute isolation and I found those really interesting so one is Gentleman Overboard by Herbert Clyde Lewis mm. um, which was republished uh, um, last year maybe earlier this year uh, which is about a man who falls off a boat essentially or ship or something um and the rest of it is him being in the water on his own for hours and hours and hours and it does go there is some of it that goes back to the the uh the ship and sees what people are doing there but most of it is just about the absolute isolation of a man who can't even see anything other than see in every direction and is on his own Uh, it's a very slim novel or novella maybe i think it's exactly the right length you don't want to overdo that that sort of because it does feel very uh, desperate and difficult to read in some ways. Uh, it's and really well written. I, I found it an extraordinary experience and hard to keep the momentum going when you know nothing is changing really. Yeah, uh, it's his memories, it's his thoughts, and it's um, but it, but it's not like lots of flashbacks and things because some things like that aren't really about isolation. They're about what people are remembering. This is moment by moment what it's like to be completely isolated and in great peril. Yeah. So yeah, that's very good. Um, and then the other one was The Wall by Marlon Haushofer, oh. which um, which I l- listened to. It's, it's in German originally, so I listened to a translation. And that's a really interesting novel about this young woman who goes, to, she's staying at a farm. I think she's. I think there are people who live, and she's staying with friends maybe, and they've gone to a party that she didn't go to and they, they don't get back. In the morning, they're not there. And she starts walking out away from this farm and comes up against an invisible wall. Uh, and it turns out there is an invisible wall that is encircling several acres, including her farm uh, and one cow and some dogs and things. And everyone outside the wall has died. What? And then it's just about how she survives Gosh. within this within this uh, invisible wall. So absolutely fascinating. And again, it's quite sort of, uh, it's not, there's not really flashbacks and things. It's more just, that's a survivalist novel, I guess. Like, how do you keep going when there's not that much here how do you keep going mentally how do you keep going uh physically and i find if someone can write that sort of novel where there are after the big event at the beginning there's not really that much that changes uh, and still be sort of captivating and and the wall is quite philosophically interesting and it's quite it's beautifully written it's not sort of a page turner it's more like contemplative but Mm. uh yeah so unlike anything else i've read those two books yeah they both sound really intriguing actually I'd be interested to to read them but I think it's um yeah I think it's interesting to think about living by yourself and 
loneliness and the concept of you know is living by yourself I mean both of us live by ourselves Mm. it's that kind of why is that seen as a lonely existence how can that be seen as a lonely existence because just because you're in your house by yourself doesn't mean you have no interaction with the outside world um but there seems to be a sort of I think a bit of a lazy metaphor sometimes in Mm. people who live by themselves as being sort of you know introverted people I mean I'm certainly not an introvert um I am, but as a point, it still stands, yes. It's not a bad thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a typical person who people would think would live by themselves because, you know, I'm always on the go and talking 19 to the dozen, but <laughs> I really enjoy also having time just, just to myself. And something that's interesting that I read um, not that recently is The Scapegoat by Daphne du Maurier, um, which is wonderful. One of her lesser-known novels, actually. It's very good, yeah, yeah. I recommended. Um, and the the concept, which is ridiculous, but you just have to go <laughs> with it, is that um, there are uh, two men who are identical, and one is French and one is English, and one is a count. The French guy is a count, and the English guy is a historian and an expert in French history, or no, French, French literature, I think, and just so happens to speak perfect, unaccented French. Yes. Um, and they swap places. And the the guy who, the English um, professor, lives this very monastic existence and he very much enjoys being by himself and having everything as he likes it. And living alone is something that um, is important to him because he doesn't want anybody else to intrude on his life. Um, and then when he swaps places and he has to move, he moves into this chateau filled with a huge amount of difficult relations of this of this count um he suddenly realizes actually that that he can deal with people and and having a family is something that he does want and does excel at being um a part of and that's something really interesting to see that kind of contrast and in that circumstance him living alone is a kind of protective strategy i think because he doesn't know how to cope mm with that but once or, or doesn't think maybe that he can and then when, when he is put in that position he he is able to so I thought that was an interesting contrast and I think living alone well it's not living alone it is something that has become much much more common yes. in the past a few decades in in the UK and I, I think in most of the west uh, and certainly if we're looking at books from say the mid-century it would have been very unusual for somebody to to do that partly because marriage was so much younger the divorce rate was much lower people tended not to leave well certain classes of people tended not to leave home until they were married Uh, maybe working class families would live with several generations together much more commonly all those sorts of things and upper class families um yeah so maybe now it's more taken of read in a modern novel that it's not a surprise if someone's not married and they're in their 30s they probably are going to live on their own whereas uh then you might, if you were a woman, you might have had to be the one who stayed behind to look after the parents. Um, if you, yeah. I don't know what happens if you were a man who wasn't married in his 30s, but uh, maybe you lived I at your club or something. You would have been able to, I mean, as a man, you would have been able to set up house on your own um, or perhaps, you know, have bachelor sharing sort of situation. Yeah. But for women, it was much more complex. And uh, something I've noticed that's been quite interesting is, is exactly as you say, that it is becoming more normalised to live by yourself. But there have... Um, and there's, there's there's a real kind of concern now for all the people in their 30s and 40s who are forced to still house share, which for those of us who have done it can either be wonderful or horrific. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's a real spate at the moment of novels about flat sharing, house sharing um, with other people. 
and it, I guess it's become the new sort of boarding house novel, really. Of that's yeah, true, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, what are the upsides and downsides of this situation where nobody really? Well, actually, something I really enjoyed house sharing actually, and it suited me at that time in my life because I love being surrounded by people. But um, it was it's interesting how that kind of narrative of this being a kind of space where nobody really wants to be, you're thrown together with a bunch of strangers, you're all just living together because you have to. And and how does that kind of, what, what does that tell us about modern life? I guess there was a, there's a sort of commentary there, even though a lot of them tend to be what we might call sort of lowbrow novels. I'm not saying that in a judgmental way, just that's how they would be categorised. Um, it's, it's interesting. And I love, have you read Begin Again by Ursula Orange? It's a Dean Street Press for Midrow book, but uh, oh, I think I've read Tom Tiddler's Ground. I haven't oh, read. Also great, yeah. Beginning again was one of those rare. I've not come across many mid-century. I think it's thirties novels that are about a house share, and it is a house share rather than paying guests. It's these girls who have just left school, so they're nineteen twenty, and they're all living together and want you know, various other people trying to move in and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's fraught, but it's not like it's not the sort of situation you were describing of nobody wants to be there. It is uh, uh, yeah, respected as a thing that they can do together, which is quite rare then and much more common now, as you say. Yeah. Um, interestingly, a novel which I was going to mention in relation to Lolly Willows called Living Alone is about a boarding house, just to really confuse matters. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a Stella Benson one. It's a, it's a boarding house. I think the boarding house is actually called Living Alone, but it could be, it's called something weird, what? where they are all witches. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> uh, and again, I mean, it, a bit like you were saying with the L-shaped room, uh, it's, I guess, on the halfway between isolation and community where you you have your own space, but you do have this community that's available. And I suppose boarding house novels, you know, people do often live there as an individual person rather than as a couple yeah. um, or as a family. And it is that that play of, I find that play of privacy and, uh, and I mean, private and public really interesting in that space uh, um the lonely passion of judith hearn by um yes, that, but i haven't read it oh it's so good by brian moore brian moore maybe yeah, so, yeah and that i mean it does lean towards the isn't this sad that this lady is in this boarding house but i think um there are other people in that boarding house who are slightly less desperate uh, but but yeah the, the public private thing is constantly weaving throughout that in a way that i find really interesting i guess that is what one of the things that for me makes the boarding house novel stand out is that it is it's not a public place it's not a private space and that means there's really strange mixes of dynamics going on all the time they're not family but they're not not family all that sort of thing yeah love it yeah it is it's it's a great I think premise for a novel because you've got so much um, richness there to, to play with and I think also there's a few of the um, British Library crime classics books that are set in boarding houses mm. I mean one, um, London Underground by I can't remember Doriel oh, Murder on the Underground Muriel yeah. Mavis Doriel something hey maybe yes, yeah um, that's set in a boarding house in um, Belsize Park and that's that's a really good example of how a boarding house can be seen as actually quite a positive space because um it's about a community that, that pulls together in a time of crisis and it's um yeah it's interesting um to see also the period details of it all i love seeing how it all worked like theoretically like mm-hmm. okay so or not theoretically practically um how you would get up like okay so 
Right, so you all go to breakfast together, and then some people have lunch if they don't have a job. Yes. Bath, baths extra, all that sort of thing. Yeah, yes, baths extra, and like dinners, and you've got to give advance warning if you're not coming home for dinner. So you've got yes. to really organize your week because you can't just sort of spontaneously decide that you won't have dinner tonight. You've got to have told the landlady, otherwise she's going to, you know, kick off. So it's 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 interesting how it's a kind of like you're still sort of is quasi parental isn't it like you're still Mm -hmm. accountable to somebody you've still got to report back to someone um which in some ways can be a good thing for those who need a bit of looking after and (laughs) in other ways it is quite restrictive and it's it's interesting how it's a sort of halfway house really and that I guess is literally what it's um used as a metaphor for in many ways but yeah interesting there we are yeah, I'll mention another isolation one, because I think I've mentioned it before, but I think it's really good, is uh, Yellow by Yanni Visman, which came out in the early 2000s, I think, uh, which is about an, an agoraphobic. Uh, and that's, again, it's quite a short novel, but absolutely fascinating and detailed look at agoraphobia and jealousy, uh, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly. And I do wonder, I, I haven't re- read any, or as far as I know, heard about any, but I do wonder if we've got a spate of lockdown novels coming out literally about lockdown, because obviously very ripe for talking about isolation. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of um, a lot of people don't want, certainly at the time, didn't want to write about. I didn't want to mm-hmm. think about it. I didn't want to be reminded of it. I think there probably will be a delayed reaction. It's like the war, wasn't it? People didn't want to read books about World War One just after it, but they, you know. I mean, I've said, later. I've read a couple of that have. I mean, Ali Smith's Summer came out during the pandemic and referenced it. Okay. Um, and there's, there's certainly some plays that have come out, but then they have a quicker turnaround time. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know if I'd, I don't know if I'd want to read one. I don't know if I want to go there again. I'm not ready yet. Yeah, I think I'd like to if it's the premise of something really interesting, either like a bit of the fantastic in there or a murder mystery or something. But if it's just here's the grinding reality of lockdown, it's like no, I don't need to relive those days. Yeah, I mean, we all lived it. Exactly. Yes, that's for the next generation to to like we like we're reading the World War Two novels. They can read the lockdown novels. Yeah. So, well, boarding houses or living alone, Rachel? I think because of the dramatic possibility, I will go for boarding house novels. Yeah, I think it's very hard to find any sort of type of novel that I like as much as a boarding house novel. So it was always <laughs> going to be an uneven fight. But I mean, I do love, I think people can do really interesting things with both, but I'm also going to go for the boarding house novel. Re- any recommendations are very much welcome for anybody. Yes, very much so. Um, I'm sure we've probably missed lots of very obvious examples. <laughs> uh, we do have a question for the middle part um, from Vicky. Uh, let me just find it. Uh, okay, do you gravitate towards the older authors because there is less swearing and sexual content, or because you find the quality of the writing better? Interesting. That those are the two options. Yeah, I was going to say that because I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would say I think either really. Well, um, talk to us about it. What? Just in general, your thoughts, your response. My response. Um, you know, I don't mind swearing and sex in books, um, so that would never be a consideration of mine. Um, you know, obviously it needs to be warranted. I don't like gratuitous stuff, but yeah. um, you know, it doesn't turn me off. I'm not gonna not read something. Um do I think the quality of writing is better? Often no. 
Um, there are a lot of terrible 19th century writers who, because of the circumstances of the time, were writing, you know, there's just much trash produced in the <laughs> there is now. You know, this concept that because it's old, it must be good is ridiculous. And I say this, to, you know, when I was teaching to my, my kids all the time, you know, guys, just because it's written in the past doesn't mean that it, it's quality. Like Charles Dickens, you know, as far as I'm concerned, can't write for toffee. <laughs> um, I know that's sacrilege for some people, but I mean, he he was a hack writer. He was, you know, he would have been the equivalent of Dan Brown today, you know. Um, so I think I certainly there are some classic novels that I I think you know, particularly things like Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte and um, Anthony Trollope and Shakespeare and all that sort of stuff that are canonical for a reason and when you read them you're getting a kind of education in how to in how to write well because there's a reason why those books have lasted the test of time why people go back to them time and again there's something in the quality of the writing there's something in the structure of them um that makes them compelling but i you know actually more and more these days i tend to read more contemporary stuff and i think maybe it's because it's be i i think there is a real desire at the moment to to push the boundaries of what we can do in terms of writing and and what um kind of quality looks like and what experimentation looks like and the questioning of what is a novel and and I really enjoy that experimentation in the past you know you've you've got really quite i suppose homogenous styles of writing and structures of writing you're not going to be surprised by what you're going to come across in a 19th century novel. You know, mm. so you're going to get chapters, you're going to get lots of description, you know, whereas now you pick up a modern novel and you never know what you're going to get. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it's a bit, you know, I don't, it doesn't, not my cup of tea, but um, yeah, I think I don't gravitate towards older stuff um, because I'm looking for a sort of, marker of quality or because I want to hark back to a simpler time I like reading older stuff because it offers me something different it will also offer me an insight into a different time but I don't think that I would argue that you know they don't make them like they used to when it comes <laughs> when it comes to writing I don't think that would be a consideration of mine yeah it's, it's an interesting question uh I'm glad you asked it Vicky thank you because um I had I don't care either if people are swearing in books. I don't swear myself, but it's fine you know, for me to read it. Uh, and I don't really mind if there's sex in books. What I really don't like is violence in books. And you get that a lot less in older books. So I, I mean, I know that if I'm reading even a murder mystery from the 30s, it's unlikely to be really gruesome and graphic. Uh, and I do think modern novels are much more likely to include things that will make me feel queasy. And so, you know, part of me is, is not why I choose those novels, but I do find it interesting if people, when people sometimes single out sex rather than violence, particularly in movies, I guess, but also in books, whereas, you know, sex, sure, whatever. Um, I, I can read about it or not, not bothered either way, but violence I definitely want to avoid. Uh, and similarly, I don't think that um, the writing is necessarily better. I think the reason I gravitate to that sort of books is just a sensibility to them that I can't really put into words but it's what I'm looking for it, it feels it feels like a world that I want to be in and yeah I, yeah yeah that you kind of you want to be perhaps there's a moral there's like a morality kind of connection there with your world in the world yeah maybe that's what it is or I mean partly it is 
the style the accepted style of the time I appreciate I do read more contemporary stuff as well but I read much more older stuff and I like knowing that it's going to be it's almost certainly going to be in full sentences and have punctuation and have speech marks I like that in a book you know unless it's you know stream of conscious modernists which I also appreciate but I really don't like books that don't have speech marks for no reason or that sort of thing or just a bit spiky and unnecessary uh, in the way that they've laid out format so I don't know every every decade every era has its own sort of general feel to the literature even though that's a you know a wide range and might lots of different things within that but there's like it's got like periods of architecture you might have lots of different houses built in the 1940s but there'll be some sort of connection between them yeah um, and so yeah it's really hard for me to put exactly into words why I feel happier then it's not because I want to be in that world because I think it's a better world uh, like that's being described or that I think I'd you know born in the wrong generation or anything like that but there's just something about that era of literature that feels like home I guess that's really that's really sweet I think think it's interesting for me what you say about violence because something that often puts me off older novels is not physical violence but it's the kind of um it's the way in which women and um often sadly in in british literature jewish people are mm-hmm. out, and that will often turn me off to the point where I, I can't read anymore or i'm just so frustrated and upset and annoyed that i i don't want to read this stuff like i don't want to read about you know horrible stereotypical just depictions of women or people from particular racial backgrounds or even sometimes of disabled people as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, I don't blame the author personally. They're a product of their time, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some novels that, for me, have become so dated in the values that they hold that I don't want to read them. And you're less likely to find that in something more contemporary. Yeah, I feel like we should do maybe do a whole episode. But uh, but that yeah, great question. Um, I'd be I'd be intrigued to know what other people think about swearing and sex. If those are things that put them off in books. Um, I'd be surprised about swearing, but maybe it does. Some people really hate it, I guess. As I say, I don't swear, but, you know, people do swear around me. and no, no. I don't, don't like blaspheming particularly, but that's a whole separate thing. So, yeah. so hope you're feeling super warm and cosy and uh, for these two heatwave novels. And it really is quite chilly this week. <laughs> but um, Which you'd like to introduce us to, Rachel? Um, I'll do Heat Lightning, if that's all right. It is. Um, let's go chronologically then. Do you, want to, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so Heat Lightning is by the American author Helen Hull and has been republished by Persephone Books, if anyone is interested after listening to the episode. Um, it's very much a novel of its time. I think it was written in 1930, I want to say, perhaps 1931. Um, and it's about Amy, who is um, in her, well, she's 35. She's obviously middle-aged. She's middle-aged, it said, which, you know, I'm speaking as two 36-year-olds. <laughs> a little bit much to take in there um and she lives in new york with her husband and two children and something at the beginning of the novel we learn has happened between her and her husband we don't know what (laughs) and in order to kind of i guess get take stock of her life and work out what what she wants to do is she going to be able to move forward with her husband or not is she you know what something needs to change in her life she just doesn't know know what it is she's going back home for the summer to her family who live in the midwest somewhere it's not ever specified exactly where and they are the westover clan they are very well known in the town they own factories and all sorts and they have um 
there's a kind of a matriarch and the grandmother and then there's Amy's parents and then her, her uncles and aunts and and, siblings, and cousins etc and there are lots of factions within the family there's financial problems obviously the depression has just happened and Amy goes home to kind of relax and and to kind of rest and have life come clear to her by watching the examples of her mother and her grandmother who she's always looked up to but actually what she goes back to is is kind of chaotic so it doesn't also help that there is a obviously a heat wave and mm-hmm. um it's very warm and everybody's kind of on edge and um yeah she kind of it's it's about a lot of things but I think what's really interesting is that idea of an adult wanting to retreat back to childhood safety and what happens when you go when you go back to childhood as an adult and you realize actually all of that stuff that you thought was safe was just people skating over the surface and you're you not seeing stuff um so yeah that's heat lightning and then gradually you know she will work out what what to do with her life but that doesn't happen for a long time (laughs) So, um, Heat Wave, uh, two words, is a book that Rachel and I mentioned last time because we've both coincidentally been reading it during the Heat Wave or around that time that we had uh, last month. And I guess it's in some ways that dynamic from the other point of view because we see it from the mother's point of view in this case, Pauline. It's not back to a childhood home, but Pauline has this house. Uh, it's one of two semi, um, two semi-detached houses. Uh, that she's invited her daughter Teresa and her new newish baby grandson Luke to come and stay in the other half, and Teresa's bringing her husband Morris, uh, who is a writer, uh, and Pauline is a copy editor, which is uh, interesting. She also seems to be a, um, a literary editor. Oh no, she says she's not a literary editor, doesn't she? It's, it's interesting. She shares that line. I'm not quite sure which side she is a bit, but um, she she. Uh, has an interesting relationship with her son-in-law, an interesting dynamic with her daughter as well. And we also flash back to the husband that led to to this daughter. Um, Yeah, it's quite a slim novel and quite claustrophobic in some ways, but it's, I think, really interesting about, in both these novels, what's really uh, similar between them is that not just the heat, but that idea of how you have a relationship with a parent when you're an adult. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And in fact, we've done, it's a third penalty we've done, but they're also different. We did According to Mark ages ago, and we did um, Moon Tiger not long ago. But uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't know what it is about Penelope Lively, but I just absolutely love her writing style, and it, she's so easy to read. And I think that's the real skill when you don't notice the words holding mm, mm. before you. Elizabeth Jane Howard is rather like that. Um, I read Heatwave um, in a day, while largely while um, waiting at a station in the Kent countryside um, mm. in in baking heat um, for my friend to come and pick me up to take us to a castle for the day. Um, and I I remember just thinking this is exactly the right thing that to, to read at this at this point in time because I felt completely immersed in the atmosphere of, of the book because I was experiencing the same thing. Um and what I thought was really interesting about it was that it's a nineties novel and it felt so nineties. Hmm. Um, I felt like I'd gone back to my childhood of like going to Woolworths and um was that maybe it's set in the seventies actually, isn't it? 
a bit further back, or is it? I don't know. I actually can't remember. But um, it's very sort of late twentieth century, anyway. In some ways, it feels quite timeless as well because yeah. they, they are away from the world. It's not, it's they don't live there normally, so they're not part of the community. They are away from their normal lives. Yeah, and they're kind of suspended in this place, and it, it feels like they're on holiday, but they're also not because they've got to just sort of you know they've still got to go shopping and they've still got to do these other things. Um, and I think it's a really intriguing novel as well because you've got this relationship between these two women so you've got the mother and daughter the mother who is no longer with the father of the child of the girl who's who's now got a child of her own and they had obviously quite a a difficult relationship and she doesn't like her daughter's partner never wanted them to be together and sees echoes of her own relationship with her husband in their relationship and um, starts to suspect that an affair is going on etc and when at the beginning of the novel I think as a reader you you think this is just her imagining things this is her projecting onto her daughter the failures of her own experience you know she spent too much time on her own and it's the the heat is getting to her etc and you've got that very claustrophobic environment created Mm. both by the heat but also by these family members living very closely together in not entirely um harmonious circumstances and people sort of come and go don't they there's sort of dinner parties and um and it's it's interesting because as a reader, you don't really know what you're supposed to believe about these people and you're sort of trapped with them um, and you're trying to work them out. And um, Yeah, and it is third person, but you, we are definitely getting Pauline's point of view, aren't we? And we're trying to work yeah. out how much we can trust, how much is subjective. Not she's yeah. lying, but it's like how much is it just informed by her experiences and her role as a mother and yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you are kind of trapped in her head and you don't get to see things from everyone else. So you're trying to work out, you know, is this is this really what's going on or is this the way that she wants to perceive things? Is this is this her slant on stuff? Um and I I thought the descriptions of the heat and the descriptions of what it does to the landscape are really interesting as well. Yeah, I thought it was, I think we mentioned this briefly last time because I, when I read this and the Maggie O'Farrell instructions for Heatwave, I commented that it is hard to continue that feeling of heat throughout a novel. But I think Heatwave is maybe more successful than Heat Lightning in doing that. In that, uh, it is she always returns to that field behind the house, and describes what it's what the heat is doing there. And I remember her talking about the wheat hissing, which was just a brilliant image. Yeah, uh, and. We can see it in people's attitudes in both novels, but I um, well, maybe it didn't feel the same. But for me, but for me, I it didn't feel like the heat was omnipresent. Or I don't mean omnipresent, but it wasn't. It wasn't continuous. It wasn't. Um, it was just every now and then I was reminded of it. But did you feel it suffused the novels more? Yeah, I think it's a kind of both of them are because you know heat lightning is set in a town, but it's sort of rural. Um, so there is that sense of the landscape kind of being alive to the heat and kind of shimmering and shifting and um it's it helps to create that environment i think of of not being stuck necessarily but of being oppressed mm. uh, and being somewhere where you can't breathe and you can't you know you're sort of yeah i i guess kind of stuck in a situation where you you can't move freely 
you can't um like for them in um heat heat wave they kind of want to stay indoors all day because going outside is is too much and you're sort of wilting um mm-hmm. as a person and wilting is often is used to describe a lot in in heat light in heat lightning as well that kind of you know everything's so much of an effort and the exhaustion that they feel is also reflected in in their emotions but also in the landscape around them everything's drooping everything's wilting it's the height of summer but everything looks dead um and you know i'm sure somebody would who's far cleverer than than me would say something very interesting about you know ecological stuff climate <laughs> and all the rest of it which you know eco criticism is an area of literary study um and it is interesting to for people, you know, I'm no climate change denier, but, you know, the, uh, certainly not. I'm massively um, involved in climate activism, actually. But um, the idea of, of this as being something that is it's not just happening now, this is a historic thing, you know, these all enormous heat waves coming in and how that affects and changes people's behaviour as well. Because lots of people do say, I mean, I, I'm a believer that the weather does influence people's behaviour. Yeah, of course, yeah. And, you know, how do we how much in these novels is what happens a result of the heat is something to think about. They would have behaved in this way Would these arguments have happened Would these conversations have happened Would these, you know, belief systems have have been created if um, the heat hadn't, hadn't been there and it'd been, you know, winter instead. And I do think it's interesting in heat wave. Maybe I said this last time, but there is such a disconnect between the, uh, between the characters and the industry of summer so they're aware that these are crops and there are harvests and this is the livelihoods of people there but because they're not country people uh, they don't feel part of that they're enjoying you know or not enjoying the aesthetics of it but i i like that she recognizes that it is an industry around her that is yeah sort of lost to her and i guess similarly in heat lightning whilst much of the family do live there they're upper class upper middle class they're not they're not working for most of the most of them uh the ones who are working are more involved in like money markets and that sort of thing uh whereas there is this sense that there is a, a both a servant class and a local industry that they are there to patronize or to observe but not to be part of and, and that sort of industry is much more affected by the heat even the servants are affected by the heat the, yeah lulu the maid and um lavinia the housekeeper are much more affected by the heat it seems and everyone else because they can't just sit down and have a drink yeah. in, the, in the heat they're the ones who have to keep constantly going probably wearing quite cumbersome clothes and all that sort of thing yeah uh, and i think it is interesting how she has uh different the classes together like lulu and lavinia are not just people who come in and bring a, a drink and then leave they are very uh full characters really interesting people who are perhaps have more sense of family loyalty than anyone else in here, but not in a sort of other an old family retainer who everyone loves and has no personality, but but people who sense that have a sense of belonging that other people in the cast of characters perhaps uh, feel is has, is more fragile. Mm. And there's a lot of characters. I was very grateful for the principal character list at the beginning. I kept referring back to it because Amy goes back. She's got her parents, her grandmother, her sister, her aunt, her aunt's children, all, yeah, people all over the place, many of whom have married other people locally and they've got children, all these sorts of things. Uh, and they're, yeah, they're all well drawn. There's just a lot of them. Yeah, there are a lot of them. And it was interesting because I had a very different response to the reading at this time around. So this was a reread for me. I first mm. read it about 10 years ago, I think, when it was first republished. And 
I remember the first time I absolutely loved it. I was really sort of found it compelling, really interesting, really engaging. This time around, I just really struggled. Oh, why? What sort yeah. of, what with? I was just bored by it. And oh, also, I really, really disliked Amy. Um, and, you know, I, I know she changes as the novel goes on. So, you know, by the time I got to the end, I was like, okay, I, I feel better about this. But it's one of those books where nothing happens. And normally I don't mind that. But the rest of what was going on wasn't compelling enough because Amy was such a dislikable character. And I also had issues, you know, having just mentioned the idea about morality and so on and, and how sometimes that, that clash in novels written in the past can, can be quite upsetting for a contemporary reader. I didn't like the depiction of Curly, who is the... I was going to say, yeah. Um, the illegitimate child of... Oops, spoilers, yeah. <laughs> You find out they before the halfway mark. Yeah, that's true. Um, the illegitimate child of um, the grandfather who's died, um, and the grandmother Westover had insisted on bringing up the child herself, though he's not being brought up by her. He's basically her handyman, and he's disabled. And, and it's a, yeah, it's a bad description of depiction of a disability because we don't know what sort of disability we have. They they suggest he's violent for no reason in a way that people with disabilities are often characterised. It is quite upsetting to read yeah, now. Yeah, it is. And I, I was just like, I'm a, and yet she's seen as some sort of heroine for having taken him in. And all of the other siblings want to get rid of him and send him off to a home. And I'm just like, this is horrific. And it's and it's all treated as if it's perfectly reasonable and that Grandma Westover is, was has done the right thing by turning him into her bloody gardener. I mean, I'm <laughs> this isn't okay and it really made me actually I mean I know again we can't ascribe our contemporary attitudes to people in the past but it, it did leave a sour taste in my mouth about the author herself um and I really struggled to get past that interesting interesting what you say about Amy because I found her really interesting as a sort of uh, a wife estranged from her husband in as much as if it was a contemporary novel, you might expect her to be, you know, feisty and independent or really sad and missing him. And I like how she is both those things in this novel that, you know, she'll be very like, I don't need him, whatever. And then she'll go madly send him a, a telegram saying, I miss you so much. Uh, and she, I, li- I liked that sort of quite believable mix of her really having chosen to go away from him and clearly being angry with him but also being dependent on him emotionally Uh, and it was a a complex and interesting marriage even though we don't see very much of him at all on the page we sort of build and we don't know what's happened for quite a while we we build up a portrait of their marriage from a distance and she's not really telling her family anything and they're they're asking questions and she's trying to avoid them so I thought yeah it could have been a much more simplistic um, portrayal of, of a wife who has temporarily left her husband then then in fact it was much more and you know and her children are off at camp she's missing them uh in quite an, an interesting way because she's missing them differently the, the the son and the daughter she has a different relationship with the two of them and it, i think all of those sorts of relationships were really well drawn they don't make her more likable but i think they make her more believable yeah i think you know believable is is i think the the key really i mean she's not perfect she's very far from perfect but she's also very ordinary in, the, in her lack of of perfection you know she's very judgmental of other people she very much sees herself as having uh in move in moving to new york and having this kind of quite glamorous life as being above her her other family members in mm-hmm. in many ways not her mother and father and grandmother but certainly her aunt and her cousins and the way that she looks down her nose at them um, doesn't necessarily come to see herself as having been wrong in that um 
is interesting. But then I think, well, you know, I'm judgmental and, and awful as well. <laughs> like, because it reminded me of me. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've got to accept that sometimes, haven't you? But it's, it's interesting how Helen Hull doesn't shy away from making her somebody who who is difficult to like and difficult to warm to. And mm. I think that's a grave decision as a novelist to create such a character. Though yeah. whether she was supposed to be unlikable <laughs> or not, I don't know. That's the question. Well, I think similar to Pauline in Heatwave. I mean, I didn't love, I thought she was really interesting as a person. And I could see that there were any sympathies that, that both Penelope Lively had and expected the reader to have. But I don't think she was a lovely person by any means. So I think they're both... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess you see people at their most real when they're of family dynamics, aren't they? There's not much sugarcoating a family dynamic usually. Yeah. Uh, the politeness goes. I mean, I did find the um, heat lightning quite slow, but really beautifully written. So I, I tried to slow down. I thought, I, was, I wrote down one line on the first page which, um, where it said, her coming had been a kind of flight. And like all flight, what she had run from had been far clearer than her goal. And I thought that was great. And also just really showed you what sort of person she was quite quickly and there's lots of things like that where it's they're not quite um you know epigrams or something but they are uh true maybe yeah truths that are sort of told very neatly and there's lots of that sort of thing in, in the novel which if you want a page turner or even if you want something that's average space <laughs> you know, quite irritating but if if you have the time to sit back slowly and read 400 pages and not expect a lot to happen uh i really appreciate it and i think things do pick up i won't say that what the event is but there's an event about half two-thirds of the way through that I think helped pick up the pace uh, yeah more yeah and yeah it does it does kind of pick up steam and get more enjoyable as it goes on I think for me a heat wave was was the one that was much more of a slow burn but I think because it was a slow burn and also there was so much tension I was kind of enjoying because mm-hmm. I didn't feel like nothing was happening and then there really is a shocker Yes, which we won't say, but it is. It's literally a page before the end. And I was reading it in bed and I just went, ah, like that. Um, And (laughs) I go back and read it again to make sure that I'd read it properly. And I was like, oh my goodness. Um, And then I like rang my mum because she'd read it as well. And I was like, oh, she's like, I know. Um, So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a really good ending because you're kind of lulled into a full sense of security the whole way through that that nothing's really going to happen and then when it does yeah like there's nothing you can do about it like you don't even have time to process it yeah it's just bam and and you mentioned it felt very 90s i mean heat lightning is very much in its period because the wall street crash and the consequent financial unrest is front and center and we haven't quite got to the great depression it's more like things are still falling apart at this point yeah. in the novel and, and as i say some of the family work in finance some of them are borrowed heavily uh there's people who um have sort of been lying to each other about financial things and it's all exacerbated by the beginnings of this financial catastrophe in america uh, and so yeah it really does feel like we're on a knife point of of that happening it's it's a com- it's a family that probably hasn't changed enormously in generations and this is going to be one of the things that really shifts what that family is is like maybe even the class that we're in i don't know we don't see quite what's going to happen next but it is a real desperate time yeah it is and you really do see that and you see the shift in um attitudes amongst the family and the way in which they're being perceived and like the also how the wider family are marrying people of a different class or different social background which is also causing mm-hmm 
friction and tension within the family. Um, it, it is quite an interesting one because it didn't necessarily... I knew that it was obviously American, but it's quite interesting to see that kind of the focus on social status and things. It didn't feel American in that sense. It felt quite British. And I think you see in this novel how, you know, the claims that, that America is a classless society, et cetera, are false because yeah, you know, yeah. all of that snobbery and the idea of status is very much in there of, of this once great family who's starting to, you know, things are starting to change. And for example, you know, Amy's father is actually going to the factory every day and working there. Um, and some younger members of the family expect not to need to work. And and now they need to, and they can't find, like her sister's husband can't find work. And that's a real, real stressor in the family. But though I had to laugh, I was like, yeah, but they've still got a maid though. So oh, exactly. They're not, yeah. Maybe they're th- one of the things that makes it, I, could, I hope I'm not wrong about this, it makes it feel more like 1930s America than 1930s Britain is the sense that whilst they are this upper class family, a lot of that hinges on wealth. Whereas in yeah. the UK, if like if a family of that in the 30s lost all their money, they'd be impoverished gentry, but they'd still be gentry. Whereas it feels yes, like no, here they right, could, right. yeah. You're quite right, yeah. Which is interesting. Mm. It, to me, like the setting definitely feels very American in a way that I enjoyed. Yes. I enjoyed being sort of seeped in that Midwest uh, I love yeah. any novel where there is a porch involved. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the thing that America does so well is the house with a porch and that sort of outside living where everybody's sort of running between houses and you, lots of life goes on outside, um, which is not so much the case here because of our weather is obviously quite different. And it is my dream in life to have a porch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably not in central london but you never know not gonna happen but i can dream i've got a balcony which is kind of the same thing yeah basically just stick a swinging seat on there and yeah. get, get someone to bring you a glass of lemonade and you're good to go yeah. Yeah. right well which you gonna pick heat lightning heat wave well they're both very good in different ways but i think the me the one i enjoyed the experience of reading the most was heat wave yeah, I'm finding this one really hard, actually, because neither of them are like books that are going to be on my top 10 of the year list, but I did think they were both really good. And I think because of the immersive way I felt on it, I'm going to say Heat Lightning, but that could change if you ask me again in 10 minutes. So I'm going to say, <laughs> say Heat Lightning for now, but um, it's interesting how they have these similarities and they are so different. Yeah. Great. Well, there we go. Um, something I forgot to, to say earlier was we had the draw for late and soon oh. edition. It wasn't clearly we didn't sell it that well because there weren't that many people who entered. But uh, Sarah, congratulations! I'll send it to you. I'll message you in case you've not listened this far through the episode uh, and get your address and send that off to you. And actually, know which country you're in, so let's find out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and hope you enjoy it. Uh, in next episode, we are going to be doing A Helping Hand by Celia Dale, which has just been reprinted by Daunt Books, uh, and The True Deceiver by Tervi Jensen, which I'm looking forward to a lot. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. I'm looking forward to reading this, this new book. Yeah. Mm. And we'll speak to you next time. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.